Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Okay, so Parsha Naso. Avi, I'd like to kind of bypass the first pieces because as you actually explained to me, this is more of repetition, not for them, because this is years later where they're potentially putting everything into practice. For us, it's only eight weeks later or so. Suffice it to say, let's talk about Sota. I'd, I'd like for you to kind of go over with us and, and explain a little bit more about what the entire process entailed, and then I'm going to kind of throw more questions as we go based on what you explain. Okay. So we start with a woman who is married to a man, and the man has seen her alone with another man, and he becomes jealous and suspicious. He has then decided to take her to the Kohen and share his concerns and his suspicions, and the Kohen then begins the process of Isha Sota, or Sota water, which, yes, might be where we get the term soda water from, but in any case, it is the idea that the woman would go through a series of steps with the Kohen that would lead her to either um, admitting that she had some sort of inappropriate relationship, possibly an affair, with this man or some other man that her husband was concerned about, um, or she continues to claim her innocence um, and goes through this process, which then leads to her being shown as innocent. Uh, and the process is as follows. She would essentially go through a number of steps. It would start with the, the Kohen coming to her and explaining what was going to happen and giving her an opportunity to confess. If she did not do so, so they would bring a karban that was a meal offering. Um, and again, he would give her an opportunity to confess. If she did not, then they would take some of the water that was found in the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, it was holy in a sense, right? But we don't use the term holy water. He would add to that some of the dirt that was found in the Beit HaMikdash, along with a piece of parchment that had the curses of the Isha Sota written on it in ink. This is the same ink we use to write Sifrei Torah today. We know that it is made from all natural products. 
So on the one hand, that means it wasn't toxic in a sense. On the other hand, we know that just because something is all natural doesn't mean it's good for us, right? Uh, uh, horse dung is all natural, but I wouldn't want to be eating it. So at the end of the day, um, all of this would go into the water that the Isha Sota um, would be given. And again, after each step, she is given the opportunity to confess. She would then drink this water. It's, was We're told it was very bitter water. Um, and after that, they would watch to see what the results would be. And if she was guilty, it says that her uh, lower extremities would, would drop and seem to explode. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of summarizing here. And if she was not guilty, then she would be perfectly fine and everything would, would be hunky-dory and her husband should take her home and he should be with her and it would help her be fertile. So that is the, the basic steps and the basic process of Isha Sota. The, you okay. wanted to jump in with questions, so go ahead. I do, thank you. So, so I mean, the, first, the very first question that pops into my head is, so we're talking about a husband who suspects his wife of being with another man. Now, I'm sure we all know what that implies, at the same time, as far as what implies that there's reason for that jealousy, I'm kind of wondering if you can explain to us what kind... I mean, obviously, if you walk in and there's two people in the midst of things, then there's certainly reason for suspicion. No. But tell us more so than right. that. So, so if you walk in and people are in the midst of, of marital relations or sexual relations... There's nothing to suspect. You have proof. You have seen it. And therefore, there is cause for divorce. There is cause for, uh, if, if, for, for all sorts of, of repercussions that would be justified, right? Because it is fact. It is something you saw, she knows you saw, he knows you saw, right? And therefore, it is fact. In this case, what we really have is suspicion that is justified by certain types of activity. So, for instance, in this case, he saw her alone with a particular man. He has told her not to be alone with that man again, and yet he has found her alone with that man uh, a second time or more. Um, and obviously we're not talking about someone who is her relative or someone who, with whom she would have a justifiable reason in a public place to be. We're talking about somebody who she wouldn't necessarily have any other reason to be with, uh, uh, to be together with, and where this is not in a public place. This is some place where there could be uh, <clears throat> things happening, let's so, say. So, Avi, are you suggesting, and I know, realize this is not you suggesting directly, but rather interpreting, but are you suggesting to us that it is completely and wholly inappropriate for a man and woman to have a platonic relationship? So I am not suggesting that. What the there there are two pieces here. One piece is that I think there is a need to be thoughtful about 
men and women having relationships that are platonic and where those um, activities and where those conversations take place. So again, we have public spheres and we have private spheres, right? We have laws of yichud, uh, of being alone, that set us up for what might be appropriate, what might not be appropriate. So for instance, right, having a conversation out in the street, and I'm going to put aside the Pirkei Avot line, right, that, that one should not have conversation with a woman. Um, we, can, we can pocket that for another day. Um, but, but having a conversation out in the street that is a, a public conversation uh, is, is acceptable. Having a conversation in uh, a place like the supermarket, having a conversation even in someone else's house when others may be coming in at any given moment or when there are children around, right, can be acceptable because there isn't an opportunity for the two people to be alone together and um, to have chemistry together, let's call it. Um, I think what needs to be carefully thought about is what happens when those two people are together alone, they may enjoy each other's company, they may even think about each other, and that can then lead to an interest, that can then lead to experimentation in theory. So I hear that theory. I'm going to kind of provide an uninvited psychological kind of connotation to that. I, I think that based on what we're led to understand so far is there's probably a question of the health within the relationship to begin with between the man and the wife. Um, and why do I say that? Because quite frankly... I think it's perfectly reasonable and perfectly feasible for men and women to have healthy platonic relationships. I think that I would dare say that either you or I, if we were alone in a room with someone that is not our wife, we could be completely respectful and appropriate and friendly and not in any way, shape, or form create any kind of suspicion or concern on the part of ourselves or our spouses or the other set. And so I think that what's interesting here is, is in part that we're dealing with something that's unsaid, which is there's probably an already lack of health within that relationship to make this so concerning to begin with. While I'll agree with that component, that, that this may have been an unhealthy relationship or, or have an unhealthy um, base layer to it, um, I, I'm going to maybe show my age and say, uh, I'm going to go with the When Harry Met Sally line of men and women cannot just be friends. I believe they were in a public restaurant when they were behaving that's, inappropriately. That, that is also true, but that's, yes. a, that's a, a different story for, again, for another day. So, I have another question 
based on what you've shared so far. Uh, and I'm just going to throw in a quick interlude real quickly as far as um, just because something is all natural does not make it safe. I just want to be very frank about that. Hemlock, angel trumpet, all natural. Foxglove, all natural. Uh, don't ingest any of these. They are not safe. Uh, so just throwing that out there. That being said, um, the next question that I have is, so basically we have a husband who suspects his wife and if it turns out that there was nothing to be suspicious of, that, that's it? That's, they're just supposed to go home and have relations and it's, it's a blessing on the woman and she'll have a child with this person who just accused her of infidelity and there's no, no apology, no repercussions or nothing. So the Torah doesn't legally mandate it. The rabbis talk about it a great deal. Um, one of the things they actually talk about is the juxtaposition in the text between the Isha Sota and the Nazir, the Nazir being the Nazarite who, who is going to become super dedicated to God in a variety of very specific ways. Um, and they suggest that perhaps the reason he became a Nazarite is because he saw this, this event of Isha Sota. He wasn't even the participant. He was merely an observer. And that this jarred him to the core where he needed to reconnect with God in, a, in, in some very specific ways. And so certainly the rabbis talk about, well, how does this, you know, how does... How does the observer feel? How does the husband feel afterwards? How does the wife feel afterwards? What is the, the relationship like after the fact, right? Certainly if, if there was um, some distrust at, at the bedrock of this relationship, then I don't know that this has fully resolved it, but we can talk about that more. So it kind of gets back to the idea that maybe we didn't have such a healthy relationship to begin with. And hopefully, or perhaps, helps the... Again, it can, it can be about a, an unhealthy relationship. It can also be about the husband's own anxieties, neuroses, which you can speak to better than I can, um, and, and perhaps this may qualm some of his concerns or may address some of them. Um, and this may be a good place for me to jump in and talk about sort of the three ways to look at these results. Um, so there are those who, who want to look at it from a purely religious perspective, that this was... Uh, a miracle, right? That if she really was um, not uh, not faithful, then uh, a miracle would occur, and and her lower half would essentially explode. Um, and that if she had been faithful, she would be fine. There are those who would take a more scientific approach, and might say. Well, if we're talking about 
husbands and wives who are believers, and we can assume that they are believers because they went to the Kohen as opposed to trying to deal with this some other way, then if she goes through the process and nothing happens, then the husband must believe that she was innocent. And if she goes through the process and, uh, and, and believes and does not confess, she must truly believe she is innocent. And therefore, by going through, simply by going through the process as believers, then that would lead to them building more trust with each other because he sees that she was willing to go through the ordeal, he, he sees that she was innocent of the ordeal, and therefore they could, they could move forward. The question I have for you, I guess, is, is there another scientific answer, or a more scientific answer, in that if this woman is drinking this mixture that can include a variety of things, including dirt and including ink, um, and what, and then it talks about her lower half exploding, Right? Could we be talking about either some sort of bowel reaction or even some sort of um, uh, menstrual reaction to the, to the drink? Or might it even be psychosomatic where her, her feelings of guilt, um, despite the fact that she didn't want to, to confess, but her feelings of guilt might have led her to have this reaction. So I'm going to focus mostly on that last piece, the psychosomatic component, because without knowing obviously what exactly is in this concoction, it would be really hard to say whether or not any medical complications could occur. There's a lot of people who eat dirt and it's perfectly fine, um, but we also know that Clostridium live in dirt, and they can be responsible for all sorts of different kinds of things, including, um, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that, because we don't need people Googling. Um, so, so let's talk about the psychosomatic piece. The, the brain and the mind, and I separate those two very purposefully, are very powerful, and they can certainly create in people physical responses, even if we don't know any medical explanation. We have an entire list of different diagnoses in the, the DSM, the, the Di Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Diagnosing Psychiatric Illnesses, that comprise psychosomatic illnesses, psychogenic illnesses. And we've changed the names throughout the years, but... Basically, we've seen everything from non-epileptiform seizures to blindness to limb paralysis. Um, all sorts of things can occur because of the mind's response to something that has led the body to have a response. And the better we get at testing, the more we see that we can call these things different. So for example, we used to call them uh, psychogenic seizures. 
And then when we saw that there was non-epileptiform activity, meaning it wasn't a seizure that was an electrical seizure in the brain, then we called them non-epileptiform seizures. And we've kind of still morphed the name ever since. And then there's a, the conversion disorders, uh, which also include things like blindness, where there's a very interesting test. If somebody has blindness that we believe is psychogenic, there are certain things like you can put a proverbial stumbling block in their way and they will not bang into it. Whereas we know that, well, I hope none of us know, but we presume that if we were to put a stumbling block in front of somebody who had physical blindness, they would stumble. Uh, hence why we don't do that. So the mind is very powerful. And, and not only that, but the mind has the ability to increase and affect already physical things. Anyone who's ever had any kind of physical pain, I'm sure can relate to the idea that there are times when we have physical pain when we are happy. For example, a grandparent whose grandchildren are climbing and jumping all over them. It doesn't necessarily matter how much your knees hurt, how much your back hurts. You're going to let your grandkids jump all over you and you're just going to have a great time. And yeah, you might be sore the next day, but you're not going to feel it then. Whereas, when you are having to go to the uh, particular work meeting that you're not looking forward to, or, or having just arguments with your significant other, or what have you, a stubbed toe can feel more painful than a punch in the face. And all of that has to do with the fact that the mind is related to the processing of pain. And it doesn't mean that it's not real. It just means that there are components that are beyond our current understanding other than to say, hey, the mind's involved here. And so, so I think it's certainly within the realm of possibility that somebody could have a psychological response to what may be a seemingly innocuous concoction of stuff they put in water that wouldn't do anything unless maybe you had a guilty conscience. So Akiva, the next part of the Parsha talks about the Nazir. And in case anyone is unfamiliar, the Nazir is the Nazirite who chooses to take upon him or herself a, an oath of at least 30 days. And there are certain restrictions that that person puts upon themselves in order to try and get closer to God. Those restrictions include not drinking any alcohol. Those restrictions include not cutting their hair. And... The goal is for them to really sort of push away the physical and focus in on the spiritual. And on the one hand, that all sounds nice and good, right? It, it sounds like something we should strongly encourage. And yet, at the end of their time, the Nazir has, or, or Nazira has to bring a carbon that says that they were guilty. And they, that's, that certainly seems to imply that they've done something wrong. 
And then when I look at the traditional uh, commentaries, one of the things they suggest that this person did wrong is that they separated themselves from the community. They maybe tried to be holier than. And what I'd love to hear from you is, how important is it for us to be part of a community? How important is it for us to follow the norms of our community versus trying to be other than? So I know we've talked a lot in the past about kind of the importance of community. And, and one of the things that was clear um, that I, I believe we both were, were very much agreeable to is the idea that while certain things find you find the community that fits, the fact remains is that the, there is an importance in the community as a whole. And once you find a community that fits you, if you find that certain behaviors are not agreeable and they're truly not agreeable, then you change them. You don't separate yourself from them. And, and I think that that is kind of what we're seeing that the, the Nazir does is they, instead of potentially seeing, I don't like what I'm seeing here and I'm going to set an example of what is a, a better choice, is, no, no, I'm better than you all and I'm going to separate myself. And it's not even a permanent, right? It's a, it's a hiatus. It's a, oh, I'm going to go and uh, sit over here for a little bit and I'm going to be doing my own thing. Which is really just, if you look at the... I mean, I realize I'm, I'm kind of going into your realm here, Avi, but, but if you look at the basis of, of really much of what our belief system is, is inherently impressing the importance of is community. You have to have a minyan to daven. You have to, you know, yeah, you can daven by yourself, but the ideal is as a community. You, you can't have a wedding without adim and uh, a certain amount of, you have to have joy. You have to have people involved. There's so much that is so communal in nature that I think that the idea of separating yourself in and of itself is not what we want to be seeing. So that probably fits with the guilt offering afterwards. And then even on top of that further, I guess the question is, what kind of what kind of need is there? You know, because it doesn't sound like this is someone who says, you know what, I want to go and I want to learn more and I want to make sure that I have a strong understanding of this, so I'm going to go to a, a short yeshiva or, or a kolo for a bit and just study and, and learn something more so I can become knowledgeable and better at it. That's not what this is. This is a, well, I'm going to go to an extreme, and even though our religion allows this, I'm going to not. And even though it's going to do this, I'm going to not. And, and it's kind of this, this purposeful separation. And the truth is, is at the end of the day, you know, we, we say that this is an idea that I'm going to separate myself from the material to focus more on the spiritual. And yet at the same time, you're purposefully cutting off the material, which puts a focus on it that maybe it didn't have before. 
So I guess the only kind of caveat that I would throw out there is, is this somebody who was finding themselves too, um, too focused on the material to the point where they lost sight of what was more important and needed an opportunity for themselves to say, hey, I, I need to reset and reconfigure what my priorities are, in which case, again, that would also explain why a guilt offering would be given afterwards because it would be a realization of I wasn't doing what was most important and I wasn't living based on my values. It's interesting because one of the things you you sparked in my mind was there is a time in Judaism where we reject the physical and that is when somebody is in Avelut. They will cover the mirrors, they will grow out their hair and their... And their um, beard, they're male, and, and, and so the focus there is not, is to, is to move away from the physical, but not in order to focus on the spiritual, but rather to focus on the emotional, and so I think that's an interesting uh, alternative as well to, to look at. So, Avi, the, the next piece after the Nazir, we, we go directly into Hashem saying to, to Moshe about telling Aaron and the Kohanim that they should bless B'nai Yisrael. And, and of course, this is, you know, this is the Kohanic blessing, and we, we, we do this on Chagim, and I believe in, in Israel they do it very often uh, and of course this is also the same brachot more or less that we give to our children as parents every Shabbos and it's kind of interesting to me when I'm looking at this that there's no time frame there's no suggestion that this should be done every Chag uh, there's no suggestion that this should be done by parents every Shabbos and Quite frankly, the, the Torah is always so very clear to instruct when we should do things. And yet here we have something that doesn't say when to do it. We do it all the time, relatively. And, and then if, taking it even a step further, we have this interesting juxtaposition that we do now, and yet it seems a little bit different. So... We, we, of course, you know, think of our relationship. There's, there's different interpretations of our relationship with Hashem. One of them is, of course, that we are His children. And that fits very well with the blessing the children with this blessing on Shabbos. The Kohanim, to my knowledge, are never really described as parental in nature. They're leaders, fine. And, and the leaders, of course, have an importance to us. But there's a very different piece there. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of shed some light on what this kind of discrepancy might be, as well as perhaps a, a little bit more insight into where we came up with when to do this. And, and even the, you know, as I said, the parental piece makes sense. It's the Kohanic piece that makes less sense, even though that's the deraitsa portion. 
So let's talk about a couple of pieces. I'm going to start with the fact that I think the name, Birkat Kohanim, is a name that we have given it and is really a misnomer. Because if you look at the words of the brachot, what does it say? Yivarechecha Hashem v'yishmarecha. Hashem should bless you and guard you. Ya'er Hashem panav eilecha v'chuneka. Right? And Hashem should should uh, watch over you. Yisa Hashem panav eilecha v'yasim lecha shalom. And Hashem should put His grace upon you and and help you find peace. And I'm I'm... My translation is, is, is very general. But the focus, if you listen to what I said, was in each of those sentences, the focus is on Hashem. The Kohanim are not the ones with the bracha. Hashem is the one with the bracha. Hashem is giving us the bracha. And therefore, the Kohanim are simply the vessel that is being used, Right? because they are the ones who run the show in the religious setting. So we see that in modern times, uh, especially outside of the Orthodox movement, it became very popular for rabbis and, and uh, other clergy members in, in synagogues that at graduations, sometimes even on a, on a Shabbat, they would give this blessing to their congregants, feeling that they are, again, simply the conduit of God's blessing to the people. The, the idea of Birkat Kohanim being included in Birkat Habanim and later Birkat Habanot, right? The, this idea that this part of the blessing is included in the blessing for parents to their children was actually a later addition. It comes from uh, medieval times, I believe, and was actually in the Machzor for Yom Kippur. So for parents to give their blessing, a blessing to their children was originally just recommended in the Machzor for Yom Kippur. And then as a beautiful um, minhag, as a beautiful custom, was carried over into every Shabbat. And so that is actually a later uh, historical um, component. But the other piece that I think is, is important when we talk about time frame is that when we look at Kohanim, and when they do this birkat kohanim, when they are the transmitters of Hashem's blessing. So here, outside of the land of Israel, you're correct. We only do it on the chagim. In the land of Israel, they will do it uh, certainly every Shabbat in most cities. And in Jerusalem, they will do it every single day. So there's Birkat Kohanim as part of repetition of the Amidah every single day in Jerusalem. Um, and, and so this idea that it has to wait for a particular time or it has to wait for a different, you know, a special event, I think is, is something we've put upon ourselves and it's a framework we've created for ourselves. I'm not exactly sure why. That part of the history, I don't have it. 
I, I don't know. Um, but I think the idea that Hashem wants us to have bracha, right, blessing and shalom and connection to Him every single day is a beautiful idea, right? That Hashem blesses us every single day. And I guess one other historical piece to look at is today we do tefillah. We do tefillah all the time. Three times a day we pray. But in the times that the Torah was given, there weren't a lot of tefillot that were said. There weren't a lot of words that were meant to connect you to God. Most of it was through action, right? You brought a karban. Well, you didn't bring a karban every day unless you were the Kohen and you were bringing the karban for the, the community. But the average person would only bring a karban on very rare, uh, you know, once, twice, maybe a couple times a year. Um, but this idea that I'm going to say a blessing and I'm going to feel blessed by God every single day is a very powerful idea. Um, and uh, in, in the story, it's appropriate because it, it's um, when Hana is there asking for a child and Ellie thinks she is drunk. This is in the Navi. Um, he, she, she explains that all she, she's not drunk, all she really wants is a child. And he, and 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 Eli, Eli the Kohen Gadol tells her that when the child is born, he should be a Nazir. And so, the the words that the Torah uses is Avodah Shebelev. These are the Avodah, the work, or sometimes we refer to Karbanot as Avodah. And so here is the way to bring a Karban in your heart is through words of tefillah. And so here are there, there are words of tefillah that says God loves you, God blesses you, God wants you to have peace, God wants you to feel looked over and watched over in a good way. Um, and so here is, is the bracha. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial it is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way.